0: Greetings students, as always this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the history of the American people to eighteen seventy seven. Today's lecture is entitled The Lost Cause. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide What is in a name? Southerners and Northerners called the Civil War by many different names. As Shakespeare once wrote in Romeo and Juliet, What is in a name? Well, lots of hidden meanings and perspectives. The first of these divergent names was the War Between the States. This is one of the main southern names for the war, and it emphasizes states' rights and a war between brothers rather than over slavery. The next name is the War of Northern Aggression, another favorite of the south, which stresses Yankee hostility. It makes it seem like the Confederacy did not fire first, and that the north was to blame for the war, both of which are false. Next, the War for Southern Independence. Obviously, another Southern idea that the Confederacy was an independent nation instead of a rebellion of disloyal slave owners. This also gives it revolutionary meaning, and many white Southerners tied this concept to the American Revolution itself. Next, the War of the Rebellion, the official government name for the conflict and government records. This stresses the rebellious aspect rather than one of independence or of equal states. Next, the war for union this stresses that the war was a conflict to keep the country together and is certainly more realistic for the first few years of the war when emancipation was not a war aim later on this became part of the northern reconciliation agenda since it takes slavery out of the war and refocuses on reunion again this refers to a brothers war who disagree about the constitution rather than slavery lastly The War to Make Men Free. This was less popular, but touted by abolitionists and African Americans. This stressed the centrality of slavery and its destruction to the conflict. It was often abandoned by Northerners seeking reconciliation with the South, and the fact that there are few monuments to freed slaves or black soldiers illustrates the popularity of other interpretations over this one. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Memory and Myth. Before you listen to the next part of this lecture, click on the link on the PowerPoint under the Lost Cause and watch the video, then return to the lecture. Okay, so you watched it? Good. I find that very informative and accurate. So just to recap, the Lost Cause is a body of ideas and beliefs created and espoused by former Confederates like General Jubal Early. They deny slavery had any role in secession. They stress the idyllic antebellum southern society as tranquil, peaceful, and that slaves were content. This is often called moonlight and magnolias, and is enshrined in films like Gone with the Wind. As we know, it is very inaccurate to the true causes of the war and conditions of antebellum southern society. Next, the Lost Cause argues the inevitability of southern defeat and the righteousness of their cause. It highlights the patriotism and morality of men like Lee and Jackson while ignoring their support for slavery. It portrays Confederate defeat as due to the sheer weight of Yankee numbers against the valiant few. It also depicts Confederates as cavalier Southerners fighting northern industrial automatons and immigrants. The Lost Cause also bolsters Lee's legacy in the primacy of the eastern theater of the war where Confederate victories were more numerous. It forgets about the failures in the Western theater, as it focuses on the successes of Lee and Jackson, and it uses Longstreet as a scapegoat for failures at Gettysburg despite his impressive performances at Second Manassas, Chickamauga, and the Wilderness. In reality, ex-Confederates turned on Longstreet because he became a Republican in Reconstruction and dared to challenge the memory of Lee. Next, the Lost Cause depicts a united South. In their telling of the war, there is no Confederate desertion, no mention of conscription, or tax in kind. Unionists are ignored, as are Confederate atrocities against their own people. It also never mentions African Americans, unless in the negative, as black rapists or as the loyal mammy or Uncle Tom. One of my colleagues, when visiting the United Daughters of the Confederacy Museum, asked about deserters, to which the UDC liaison replied, well, I know that those northern boys had a problem with that, but ours never did. End quote. By the way, the UDC also approves textbooks for school districts for decades, so as you can see, this type of interpretation can get into the mainstream despite its extreme inaccuracy. Lastly, in the Lost Cause telling, Reconstruction was depicted as entirely negative. It is usually referred to as black Republican rule or worse. More on that in a moment. So, why all this effort to create the Lost Cause? As one historian once said, quote, The legend of the Lost Cause began as mostly a literary expression of the despair of a bitter, defeated people over a lost identity. It was a landscape dotted with figures drawn mainly out from the past. The chivalric planter, the magnolia-scented southern belle, the good, grey confederate veteran, once a knight of the field and saddle, an obliging old Uncle Remus. All of these, while quickly enveloped in a golden haze, became very real to the people of the South, who found the symbols useful in reconstituting their shattered civilization. They perpetuated the ideas of the Old South and brought a sense of comfort to the New. Quote. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Reconstruction in Memory. So, if the Lost Cause paints the Civil War as not about slavery, but instead of a valiant, innocent South against an evil, aggressive North, how do you expect Reconstruction to be remembered? That's right. Elites and former Confederates said Reconstruction was corrupt and evil. Southern planters claimed that the South was overrun and taken over by carpetbaggers. These were greedy Northerners who wanted to exploit the South and reduce them to servitude and waste tons of state funds on kickbacks to railroad companies or Northern bankers. Ex-Confederates also said that those who aided these carpetbaggers were scallywags. In their eyes, they were corrupt and traitorous Southerners who joined the Republican Party and worked with Northerners and freedmen to change the South for the worst. Okay, well, if Northerners are just carpetbaggers and Southern Republicans are just scallywags, all of whom are corrupt or incompetent, how do you think Freedmen will be depicted? Right. They are called lazy, shiftless, simple, stupid, childlike, and worst, the quote, myth of the black male rapist, end quote. This myth says that black men were out to defile Southern womanhood, and it also depicted black politicians as corrupt or incompetent, and freedmen were just after white women. So if the bad guys are Republicans, Northerners, and freed people, who are the heroes? In their eyes, the freaking KKK. The Ku Klux Klan is seen as chivalrous Southerners who will put an end to corruption, stop black rapists, and save the virtue of white womanhood, and bring back control to those who should wield power. Wealthy white southern landowners and merchants, that is. With this view of Reconstruction, it seems terrible, and that redemption is one of the best things ever. What is more, this memory allows poor or common whites to embrace things that actually hurt their political and economic power, like segregation and disfranchisement. As I discussed in a previous lecture, segregation and disfranchisement hurt poor whites as well as blacks alike it was these methods that took power away from the people and gave it to what was called, quote, the best men. These were the elites, the businessmen, or landowners, who could rule in their own interests without worrying about the people challenging their oligarchy. So as you can see, this memory was used to stop an effective two-party political system in the South, so that the Democrats became the only party in the region and led to a solid South, meaning that the South consistently voted only from the Democratic Party from nineteen hundred 1900 to nineteen sixty eight. The Solid South allowed the elite to enrich themselves and curtail everyone else's rights, which led to massive issues of poverty, illiteracy, and poor health which Southerners still struggle with. There is a reason why the South remains the poorest, least educated, and unhealthiest region in the country, and that is segregation, disfranchisement, and the corruption of the Southern elite. Now, this memory of Reconstruction will not stay in the minds of the South alone. It extends across the country, even to the halls of the White House, through popular culture. This is especially true of D.W. Griffith's movie Birth of a Nation, one of the greatest cinematic epics in American movie history. Let's watch a quick clip about this movie's impact and legacy. So watch it and then come back. Okay, so have you watched it? Well, to recap, The Birth of a Nation introduced a lot of important techniques into American cinematography. But it also reinforced false memories of Reconstruction, depicting it as corrupt and evil. It reinforced racial stereotypes, and it generated waves of white supremacist support for continued violence. As the documentary said, even the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, said, quote, This is history written in lightning. High praise indeed. Well, if the memory of Reconstruction was popular among the people and even the highest government officials, surely liberal academia decried it. No. See, by the 1900s, a historian named William Dunning and his students had produced a body of history books about Reconstruction that repeated the myths that we described before. Dunning and his students, like Birth of a Nation, depicted blacks as childlike and lazy. They depicted Republicans and black politicians as incompetent and corrupt and redemption by the KKK as the savior of the south. This did irreparable harm to generations of college and high school students who read these works. It wasn't until the 1960s and the civil rights movement that finally brought changes. Historians using the modern tools of the trade found these myths to be just that, falsehoods, reading the sources more carefully. Seeing the hidden motivations, biases, and perspectives that shaped the era of Reconstruction, historians began the now 60-year struggle to find a more accurate vision of the past. One that accepted while that there was corruption in Reconstruction, redemption was far from the godsend that it had been purported to be. Yet despite this massive effort in academia, the historical illiteracy lingers. The tall tales, legends, and false memories continue to be perpetuated by families, communities, churches, school boards, and textbooks. We still have a long way to go. Slowly but surely, student by student, we will hopefully dispel these hurtful lies, listen to the better angels of our nature, and strive to fulfill the promises of the 14th and 15th Amendment. Please turn to the next slide where you see a depiction of a unit of African American soldiers. So if you look on the left side of the image, the text at the bottom says, The First Louisiana Native Guard, and it appears that these are Confederate soldiers. But as you see from the image on the right, the first image was actually just highly edited to remove the Union officer. Now, I could look at this image and immediately tell it was edited because I'm an expert. The uniforms, specifically the coats, guns, hats, and other equipment are clearly from U.S. forces indifferent from that that the Confederates wore. But a person who is not an expert and just scrolling through the internet would see this and think that the myth of black Confederate soldiers was true. So let me ask you this question. Why would someone want to edit a historical image to make it look like black men served in the Confederate army? They do this to further modern political arguments and to perpetuate a false memory of a conflict over the real history. Because if you can convince people that African Americans served willingly as soldiers in the Confederacy, you can make the argument that the war was not about slavery. This is nefarious. People are literally digitally altering history to fit their ignorant or bigoted views. And most people just look for things to confirm their preconceived notions, not challenge it. People who already want to make this argument just need to look online, find this image, and bam, you have proof that you need to be an internet troll and denounce anyone who might argue that the war was over slavery. Now, in the past, you had to subscribe to crazy magazines and listen to radical talk radio on AM channels. But now, you can put any crazy idea on the internet. People will see it, and because they are not trained to discern sources, they will believe it and perpetuate these terrible ideas. This is very dangerous, and it illustrates the problem of the internet as well as our modern discourse. We need to be very careful going forward, because digitally altering history is just the beginning. We have already seen how videos of press conferences are highly edited by every media agency to fit their narrative. We see how certain government officials will say something, and then when they are confronted with it, they claim they never said it. We have seen photos from non-political agencies that are doctored to fit an administration's narrative. And as Nixon and Trump did, recordings of conversations in the Oval Office can be tampered with, edited, and then a highly doctored transcript released that fits their narrative rather than the truth. You all live in an age where finding the original recordings, audio, and documents will be paramount because we are witnessing an age of altering the words and actions of particular political actors to further an electoral and political agenda. But what is more, You yourself must be careful. Companies have your voice from Alexa, your face from Snapchat and that Russian-made aging app, so they can digitally recreate your image. They have your fingerprints from Apple. They have your searches, everything you have ever posted on a social media site. In total, everything they need to recreate a false version of yourself. Everything that you've ever written, posted, emailed, whatever, is on some government or private company server, So one day, if our freedoms are further curtailed and they want to get you for something, they'll just cast back into the archives for something to hang you with. So please, be careful with what you post and your presence on social media. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Politics of Reconciliation. Almost from the time the war ended, veterans groups began to form to memorialize their efforts and cast a new memory of the conflict that highlighted their sacrifices and painted over any internal dissension. One of the most powerful of these groups was called the Grand Army of the Republic, the GAR for short. The GAR was a veterans organization of union veterans. Each state had several posts that would hold dinners or balls for veterans and their families. They also partook in civil events and launched many veterans' political careers. Perhaps most important, the GAR was extremely powerful in lobbying for Civil War pensions for wounded soldiers and their families. More on this in the public backlash later. Likewise, Confederate veterans soon organized the United Confederates Veterans Organization, which also served the interest of their veterans and lobbied southern state governments for pensions. At one point in the early 1900s, of Mississippi's budget was devoted to prosthetic limbs and pensions for the Confederate veterans. As we can see, this is the long arm of history and the massive economic impact that the war had decades later on the states. Both the UCV and the GAR were responsible for launching a public relations campaign to enshrine their own memories of the war, And this was achieved in a wave of monument building, which occurred between 1877 to 1920. At first, this was just in the north. And these monuments were erected in the hometown of a unit and merely gave praise to the courage of the soldiers for saving the Union. But it did not last as long as it did in the south. Soon, monuments were erected on large battlefields in the east, like Gettysburg and Antietam that again merely played homage to a unit's position on the field and their sacrifices without much political context. However, things began to change in the 1880s in the South, because these later monuments had a more devious purpose. Confederate monuments were erected at the same time as each state was battling to suppress civil rights and black political activism. It is no coincidence that most southern monuments began to be built after redemption in 1877, and then really took off during the heated battles for segregation and disfranchisement which were placed in each southern state's constitution between 1890 to 1920. It is no exaggeration that these monuments seemed to be built at the same time that these new state constitutions were suppressing black and poor white voting rights. What is more, these sites became rallying points for adherence of white supremacy Jim Crow segregation, and disfranchisement, like the KKK, who wore their masks and carried Confederate battle flags at these meetings, clearly linking white supremacy with Confederate paraphernalia. The point is that a monument on a battlefield that notes a unit's particular place or service is one thing, but these later monuments serve to create a false memory of a united South to create a contemporary or new political support for their efforts to roll back racial progress. Let us look at the local Pea Ridge Monument as an example of these later attempts, so please advance to the next slide entitled The Pea Ridge Monument. So go ahead and read this. The graves of our dead, with grass evergreen, may yet form the footstool of liberty's throne, in each single rock in warpath of a light, small yet be a rock in the temple of right. O give me a land where the ruins are spread, and the living tread light on the hearts of the dead. O give me a land that is best by the dust, and bright with the deeds of downtrodden just. So, let's unpack this a bit. The footstool of liberty's throne? Whose liberties? Surely not slaves and freedmen. The temple of right? They mean the right of secession to protect slavery? The land where ruins are spread... Referring to the destruction of the war, but obviously only the destruction caused by the North and not the major issues caused by the Confederacy. Tread light on the heart of the dead in a land that is best by the dust, again, referring to the destruction of the war, the use of memory of the dead to legitimize their efforts to curtail poor white and black liberties, and finally the deeds of the downtrodden just, meaning they were justified in fighting to protect slavery and were laid low as a result. Hmm, it's so lost because Please turn back to the previous slide about the politics of reconciliation. Now, if you've ever seen Ken Burns' documentary epic, The Civil War, you'd get the impression that at Civil War reunions, or commemoration events, they were sites of national healing, of the old blue and gray-clad veterans shaking hands and embracing reconciliation. And that could not be further from the case. Because at commemoration events they became battlegrounds over the contested meanings between veterans groups like the G.A.R. and the U.D.V. Speeches by ex-Confederates and Union veterans would accuse each other of causing the war or that their cause was the most righteous. Ex-Confederates did not want blacks to attend reunions, while many in the G.A.R. wanted their black veteran brothers-in-arms to be able to participate. In addition, Union veterans did not want to have rebel battle flags involved, because they were literal embodiments of the disunion that they had fought. So rather than happy reconciliation, these events exemplify the continued conflict between veterans. As time went on, by the mid-1890s, many in the country, especially in government and the media, wanted to push for reconciliation between the sections. Historians have called this romance and reunion, painting a romantic view of a reconciled country, when in fact, it was still deeply divided about the war. The media, politicians, and society pushed the idea of a white brothers' war, a disagreement among family members over constitutional issues. This view, of course, ignored slavery and the mutual hatred of the enemy. It was also problematic, since the American Revolution was more of a brothers' war, as families were literally divided between patriot and loyalist, while the Civil War could be at best described as a cousin's war. Anyway, what was lost from this romance and reunion narrative was the stories of black veterans. Former Confederates never acknowledged black veterans, except for labeling ex-slaves as brutal and fiendish, making them out to be the bad guy. The media and most politicians purposefully dropped them from their narratives to push this reconciliation narrative. But some Union veterans would not forget these contributions and would push for their inclusion. But again, many Northerners would purposefully forget these efforts to make reconciliation easier. While the Brothers' War narrative was pushed, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, or the UDC, enshrined the Lost Cause narrative in local publications, state histories, public events, and most importantly, textbooks. You see... Local school boards control which textbooks are adopted, and the UDC effectively controlled these school boards and ensured that pro Confederate textbooks were purchased and used. These textbooks again contained the lost cause myths described earlier and also ignored slavery altogether. Since textbook companies are businesses like any other, these pro Confederate accounts became widely pervasive even outside of the South. As a result, Slowly but surely, the lost cause narrative went from a southern to a nationally embraced falsified memory of the war. That is why we see Confederate flags in protests in Michigan and other northern states, well that and the not-so-subtle white supremacy they also espouse. These efforts to rewrite history have not ended, and to this day, many states like Texas, South Carolina, and Florida choose textbooks that contain the elements of lost cause mythology, calling slaves workers, and arguing that Africans willingly came to the United States instead of being brutally beaten and hauled across the ocean, packed like lumber, in the hold of a slave ship. Thus, the battle between memory and history goes on, and hence our continued popular disagreement over the meaning of the war. Please advance to the next slide entitled, public backlash. With all wars and events, eventually the public gets tired of the cost and the bickering. By 1910, Jim Crow segregation and disfranchisement were firmly entrenched. The North had its own form of ethnic segregation and disfranchisement for new immigrants and were no longer interested in battling over civil rights. As a result, there was a public backlash in the North to the GAR and other veterans groups. One part of this backlash was the cost of pensions, which veterans wanted but never got enough of. There was a backlash for supporting civil rights as the country was not interested in equality or liberties for other races and ethnic groups. Lastly, there was a backlash against the contested meanings of the war. People always wanted a happy narrative and wished to forget the old issues and so for a time, the North ignored their veterans. We see that today with people attacking academics for being depressing when we are just doing our jobs, showing context and contingency. Civil War veterans were pushed to the side until the country, the media, and the elite needed a new wave of patriotism as the United States was embroiled in international conflicts. The First and Second World Wars brought back the veterans to the forefront. They took part in national reconciliation efforts. They highlighted the shared experience of the war, and the North, South, and now West bought into this. In between the wars and after, a series of red scares over communism and socialism gripped the country, and this further entrenched the idea of a shared national past that ignored the plights of the downtrodden and the hatred of capitalism that existed for most of our history. With the Great Depression, the country now had a new enemy, worse than sectionalism, maybe even worse than the war itself. Popular imagery tied the suffering of the Civil War to the economic suffering of the Depression, while academics decided that economic issues were the most important and began a new wave of writing that skipped over slavery and focused on the economic causes of the war. The Great Depression necessitated a new, united national effort to defeat this great foe. So, the New Deal served as a new celebration for unity against a common enemy. Popular media linked FDR to Lincoln, and FDR held one of the largest commemoration events at Gettysburg during his administration. Thus, using the memory of shared sacrifice in a time of great national trials again illustrates how politicians use memory for contemporary political purposes. The greatest example of public backlash, however, came in the 1950s, in the re-emergence of the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Movement elicited massive resistance from Southerners opposed to integration after the Brown v. Board decision in 1954. It is at this moment that the Confederate flag became prominent again, and I will save that part of the discussion for another slide. In the end, the North, just like during Reconstruction, got tired of the Civil Rights Movement. They wanted prosperity, not protests. Northerners ignored the creeping growth of pro-Confederate textbooks in high schools, while colleges finally began exposing the true history of the war in its memory in the 1960s. Northerners thus became complicit in supporting the Southern-dominated view of the war. They bought into the lost cause, and that explains that when I go to Maine or New Hampshire, I see more Confederate flags bumper stickers than I would have 30 years ago. Before we move on to our last topic... I want to tell you the ballad of Albert Henry Wilson, the last Union veteran who died in 1956. Though ignored by many in the 20th century, by the 1950s he became the last Union soldier alive and thus a public spectacle for the country. Every birthday he garnered widespread media attention, a lot of hubbubaloo, as the old veteran recalled. In 1954, on his 107th birthday, he remarked, I'm getting to be a national monument. Telegrams flooded his home, and even General Douglas MacArthur sent him an electric razor from one soldier to another. Congress passed an act to pay for his medical treatment. While he found the limelight amusing, he had an introspective side. He grew saddened whenever he talked of the war, of which he said, quote, "There was no glory." A biographer of his remarked that he was alone in his memories. Wilson said, quote, I am the Grand Army of the Republic. All that is left of it, I am the Boys in Blue. On August 2, 1956, Wilson died at the ripe old age of 109. When his funeral was held in Minnesota, over 1,500 people attended despite the heat, and hundreds more watched his hearse bear him to the soldiers' cemetery the Sons of Union veterans executed the final Grand Army of the Republic funeral rites as Fife's mournfully wailed the Battle Hymn of the Republic. The historian Bruce Canton remarked that, quote, There was something deeply and fundamentally American that is gone forever. But the Grand Army of the Republic was the last living link that bound us intricately to the great mourning of national youth. As long as the army existed, even though it was at last embodied in one old man, who stood alone without comrades, the great day of tragedy and decision was still alive, a part of living memory. There was a door into the past, and what we could see through the opening was magically haunted. But when the final handful of dust drifted down on Albert Wilson's casket, and the last notes of the bugle hung against the sky, the door swung shut. End quote. Thus, buried in Wilson's grave that afternoon, was the wretching struggle. the Union veteran over at last. So if there's a lesson to take away from this, it is that we should always do right by our veterans, and not just when it's politically expedient. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Stars and Bars. Now, let us tackle a controversial topic, the Confederate flag and monuments. But first, a few facts. There is no single Confederate flag the flag most associated with the Confederacy, the Stars and Bars, was actually just one of many flags that the Confederacy had. This one was most popular with certain units in the Army of Tennessee and the Army of Northern Virginia. But as you see from the image, there were several, and even more than there were depicted there. Now some may say, Professor Totten, this is heritage. It has always been flown in the South. Well, has it? In reality, the Confederate flag was pretty much absent from most Southern homes and communities from 1865 to 1950, with the exception of a few that flew over the state courthouses of the Jim Crow South and that were carried by elites or the KKK. You see, in reality, it was not until the 1950s when a massing outpouring of Confederate paraphernalia emerged as people had more money to spend on flags, figurines, and decorations. Think of it this way. In the aftermath of the war, was there any money in the South? No. Hell, there wasn't even much cloth or fabric. So, are you going to waste money or precious fabric on a flag of a dead cause instead of clothing your child or yourself? Heck no. The same with the Great Depression. Your family is starving. Do you care to spend a few cents on a Confederate flag over putting a little more distance between you and the bread lines? No way. But by the 1950s, people are flush with cash from their wages, the federally funded G.I. Bill, and the booming economy. As I said before, the Civil Rights Movement elicited massive resistance from Southerners opposed to integration after the Brown versus Board decision. And it is at this moment that the Confederate symbol rises again. It is no coincidence that at the same time that Americans have more money and a modern political issue that can be spun, you see the explosion of pro-Confederate materials. It is also no coincidence that protesters outside of Little Rock High School in 1957 flew Confederate flags against integration. It is no surprise that KKK members wave Confederate flags when they terrorize black families in this era. It is no surprise that the flag again became an issue right after the first black president and the Black Lives Matter movement. Remember, not too long ago, A white supremacist who had many Confederate flags at his home and took pictures with them exposed these lost cause ideals when he gunned down members of an African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina. Or that Confederate flags were flown during the Charlottesville, Virginia white supremacist rally that beat several African-Americans and ran over one anti-racism protester. And finally... 35 violent white supremacists were arrested in Russellville, Arkansas, where I live last year. They were gun-running, cooking meth, and were members of the dangerous Aryan Brotherhood neo-Nazi gang who murdered and intimidated citizens. The leader of that group escaped from prison and was found five miles down the road from where my stepkids play football in Dover, Arkansas. So this isn't just part of the past or history, it is current events and we live with it to this day. Remember, symbols are powerful things, tinged with meanings and connotations that some ignore and others see clear as day, and we ignore these facts at our own peril, and for that matter, the peril of our nation. Well, given all that, we should probably note how people feel about the symbol. A 2015 poll showed that 75% of African Americans and only 25% of whites view the flag as a symbol of racism. So we have to ask ourselves, is this heritage or hate? To me, it is hate, but that is just my informed opinion. What about Confederate monuments? Is that heritage, hate, or history? My view is that these monuments belong in a museum, not on public property. You should not have Confederate monuments at state houses or Confederate flags there like South Carolina did well into the 2000s. These are public-funded spaces, and these symbols are antithetical to what those spaces stand for. Our country, the United States. Those symbols, those monuments, are symbols of disunion to destroy our country. That being said, those flags, those monuments that tell the story at a battlefield and that are put in the context of the time, are perfectly fine. Monuments at battlefields that cite service and sacrifice are fine but monuments that espouse white supremacy of the lost cause ideology should either be moved to museums or have placards next to them that explain the political context in which they were erected. I don't think that is so burdensome. It isn't erasing history. It is putting these symbols and statues in context so they are not misunderstood for what they are. Symbols for a rebellion to protect slavery and divide the nation, and symbols of segregation and disfranchisement. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Point. So, why am I belaboring this so much? Because the biggest trick ever played on Southerners was convincing them that the Confederacy was positive and popular for the common people. It was not. If you start with the assumption that the Civil War was not over slavery, then the destruction of the Confederacy is not a good thing. And if the Confederacy wasn't wrong or immoral, then it's something to be positively remembered. If it is positive, that makes Reconstruction bad. If Reconstruction is bad, then the policies of civil rights are bad. And if civil rights are bad, then it is okay to deny the promises of the 14th and 15th Amendments. I hope I have shown you that we are not all that different. That we all want the same thing. A modicum of peace and prosperity. Please do not let yourself be divided by politicians, the media, and the elite who have an agenda to keep you divided so they can continue to drive this country into the ground. Stand up for truth, justice, equality, and love. And as I close, go to the next slide, and I beg you to listen to the words of Abraham Lincoln. Quote, We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory will swell when again touched as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. End quote. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. Take care of yourselves.